strengthen us not just spiritually but physically as well. Lord, not because the speaker is of any worth, but Father, what is spoken is of infinite worth because it's your word. Father, it's come from you. And Father, it is, as Jesus said, the words of life. Father, we need life this morning. We need spiritual life. We need spiritual transformation. And Father, that is what we ask for today. So Lord, we pray that you would give it to us for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And we ask it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. While I'm preaching these two services, make sure that uh, you don't forget that there is extra work on your part as well, because Saginaw Valley uh, responds a lot with a lot of amens, and so you guys are falling behind a little bit, so you need to, uh, to, to make sure those flow freely. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Pastors United. Um, John chapter 3. Today... The term born again is, is thrown around quite a bit. And although you don't hear it as much uh, as you used to, especially in the, uh, in, the, in the 80s, it was very common to hear people say, I'm a, I'm a born again Christian. And especially now, uh, you know, with the, the little bit of uh, seizing of age that I have, looking back, that, that phrase is, is odd to me. Why would, you know, uh, what does it mean born again Christian? Does that mean you can be a Christian and not be born again? Does that mean you can be born again and, and, and not be a Christian? Uh, what, what, what do we mean when we say someone is born again? Beyond just the Christian use of the term as well, there's lots of uh, secular uh, groups, individuals uh, that pick up this language of born again. So for example, if you just do a Google search for the phrase born again, you will find that the communications company Cisco Systems claims to have been born again uh, on their website. The Green Movement claims to have been born again. The same is also true for the Davies Shipyards, the West End of Boston, and some politicians and political parties. They all say they have experienced a, a rebirth. They've been born again in terms of their vision or their direction or uh, what they want to accomplish with their lives. Well, what does the Bible mean when it speaks about being born again? Frankly, it means something far different uh, than most of those uh, secular companies are thinking and perhaps even different than what some Christians are thinking. But... Such is the absolute necessity and importance of this idea of being born again, of the new birth, that either eternal life or eternal damnation hangs in the balance. And so this morning, as we continue on in our series called The God Who Saves, looking at the glories of salvation, we now, having looked at condemnation and having looked at election, we now come to this morning's message on regeneration, and we see the first act uh, in this process of salvation that, frankly, we are aware of that both we can see the effects of and we ourselves can feel uh, God working in our hearts to bring about the salvation that He has given us in Christ. And so we need, want to understand uh, what it means to be born again or to experience what the Bible calls regeneration. And in order to do that, I want us to, uh, to focus our attention on an exchange between a man named Nicodemus and uh, Jesus Christ Himself. And so in John chapter 3, that's where we'll be this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again, for the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For whoever believes in him may have eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning as we seek to understand what it means to be born again, why we need to be born again, I want us to see three truths from this passage this morning. The first is this. We need the new birth because of our spiritual darkness. We need the new birth because of our spiritual darkness. John sets up this exchange by telling us something of the man Nicodemus that is coming to Jesus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came by night. There, there are three descriptors there. First is that he is a Pharisee. Uh, th this means that he would have been a, a religious leader in, uh, in Jesus, of the Jews in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were known for their meticulous desire to keep all of the law of God. They were the, the back to the Bible people in Jesus' day. Let's do everything that the law of God requires us to do. So he would have been cr incredibly committed to obeying God's word. More than that, though, Jesus says he is a ruler of the Jewish people, or John tells us that. That is to say, he is one of the few Pharisees that are part of that religious body called the Sanhedrin. If you remember from our series in Acts, the Sanhedrin was the final authority for all matters, legal or religious, in the life of Israel during uh, the first century when, when Jesus is alive. And so uh, later in the passage, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. He has, he has a, a status and a reputation within the, the nation of Israel during this time. He would have been one that would have been well known for knowing the scriptures better than most, being able to interpret them, uh, externally living according to the scriptures. He would have been famous uh, in Israel. He would have been one of the kind of guys that as you're walking down the road, you see him and you say, hey, look, there's Nicodemus over there. In all of the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish Bible conferences, he would have been the one headlining the law-driven life. Okay, I mean, this is the kind of guy that he was. And yet, Jesus says, or excuse me, John is telling us that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night. Now, when I was growing up, I, you know, the, 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 what I always heard when this passage was preached was that Nicodemus was afraid to, to, to be to known to be associated with Jesus. And, and that could be true, but given his status, I think he'd probably much go and see whoever he wants without being fearful of reprisal. But more importantly than that, John, I think, wants us to understand something other than just a fearfulness on Nicodemus' part. Because in John's letters, as well as his gospel, the idea of light and darkness is never just daytime and nighttime. There are spiritual realities that he is pointing to. And so he will say at the beginning, the light has come into the world. 
Who is the light? Jesus. And he will say, but it's come into the darkness of the world and the darkness did not receive it. There, is, there are spiritual realities going on there above and beyond just light and day. Furthermore, in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he has seen the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, Jesus is obviously, you know, switching back and forth on his metaphors here. He's saying, you know, if you're walking around in the daytime, you see what's around, you got a nice little stroll, right? But if it's nighttime, what do you do? Your big toes find the furniture and you fall down, right? I mean, yes or no? I mean, that's me. Maybe I'm just the only klutz in the room. But Jesus is saying it's, it's more than that. You understand that's what happens in natural terms. But spiritually, if you have seen the light, if you have seen me in all my glory and know me, then you will walk in a straight way. But if you still live in spiritual darkness, you're going to stumble again and again into sin. So I think what, what John is saying here is that Nicodemus certainly came to Jesus in the evening time, and perhaps he was afraid, but more than anything, Jesus, John wants us to see Nicodemus exist in spiritual darkness. The, the, the night that is a part of Nicodemus' life is, is far worse, far worse than he could ever imagine. And we begin to see this with our own eyes when he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Perhaps uh, face to face, perhaps he was there to witness them for himself, or perhaps he's just heard secondhand or thirdhand the testimony of others. But he knows something about Jesus' ministry at this point, both what he is teaching and the miraculous signs that he is performing. And he says with some level of respect for, for, for Jesus addressing him as rabbi that basically uh, we know you're an okay guy. We know that you're, 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 we, we believe that you're not coming uh, out of some desire for ill-gotten gain. We're, we don't think you're coming to lead the people astray. Nevertheless, what Jesus points out is Nicodemus doesn't have faith in Jesus. He doesn't see him for who he really is. He's just another teacher in Nicodemus. He's not even ranking of a prophet, not least of which the prophet that Moses promised would come, that prophet who would be the Messiah. And so Jesus kind of... He kind of cuts Nicodemus off, and he, and he kind of, you know, Nicodemus, I believe, is probably coming to check out Jesus. We know he's a good guy, but what's his agenda? What's he all about? And he says, you know, more or less, we see the kingdom in you and the signs that you're doing. This is of God. And Jesus stops and says, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's telling Nicodemus, you think you've seen the kingdom, but you haven't seen the kingdom. And this is bad news for Nicodemus because the reality is to not see the kingdom is to be excluded from the kingdom. And Jesus says outside the kingdom there is eternal punishment. In Matthew 8, a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outside the kingdom there is nothing but eternal damnation and hell. So here is the shocking reality of Nicodemus' life. Though he is thought of as a good man in all of Israel, though he is respected as a wonderful teacher and preacher of God's word, though he is looked to as a spiritual leader and a, and a legal, and legal leader, he's not saved. He's not right with God because he's not experienced the new birth. Nicodemus says he can see the signs of the kingdom, but Jesus says, no, you can't. No, you, you, you think you see the signs, but you can't really see what's in front of you because you still exist in spiritual darkness. If you really saw the signs of the kingdom, you wouldn't just be coming to me to check me out. You would be coming to me to profess faith in me. 
You will be coming to me to acknowledge me as the Messiah who has come to redeem Israel from their sins. But that's not what he's done. That's not what he's done. And what Jesus wants to show us as being a part of God's kingdom is not about getting religion. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about even saying you believe the right things. Fundamentally, being a part of the kingdom of God begins with this first and most important thing, being born again, having been regenerated by the power of God above. Jesus is saying, you're in spiritual darkness because you've not been born again. You've not experienced spiritual regeneration. And so you are not in the kingdom. Now, that's true of Nicodemus. What about everybody else? I mean, if here's a guy, by all externals, he's doing what he should be doing. He's doing everything right. What does that say for all those that aren't doing everything right? What the Bible teaches over and over again is that spiritual darkness is a universal description of all humanity. Not just Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee, but every person apart from Christ exists in spiritual darkness. It's part of our sinful nature. And so Paul will describe in Ephesians 2 what it's like to be apart from Christ. He reminds the Ephesians, Christians, this is what you were like before you were saved. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. There's no spiritual life. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's humanity apart from God. Spiritually dead, spiritually blind, on their way to hell. Just this past week I was reading about this woman who runs marathons, which is not, you know, not that big of a deal, except she's blind. Not just a little blind, totally blind. And you can imagine that the reaction time would not be such that she's running with the cane, so she actually has her husband run with her. He, he trains and runs the marathons. So they're running together, and he's, and he's telling her, the person on your left is getting too close. Be careful. Put your arm out or whatever. You know, and you know, in, in, a, in about five seconds or however he does it, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a crack in the road. Be sure you, you don't trip on it. You know, jump now or whatever it is. But he's constantly giving her information and communication, guiding her through these marathons. It's amazing. But one time, the point of the story, something caught his eye. Something grabbed his attention and took his focus off where it should be. And the result was she tripped and she fell and she fell hard. Ripped her leg right open, had to, had to end the marathon, uh, bleeding all over the place. Here's someone who is so totally blind, so totally dependent upon somebody else. And Paul says, that's us. That's us. We, we, we are so blind that we cannot comprehend the things of God unless someone helps us. But what's worse is this, this lady knew she was blind. Paul says we don't know we're blind. We're, we are blindly blind. We're just following the devil. We're following wherever the world takes us, and we're just following the passions of our heart, thinking the whole time we're in control. We're master of our fate. We know where we're going. And Paul says, no, you, you don't know anything. Just like Nicodemus. Poor Nicodemus thinks. He thinks he's where he should be with God. And Jesus says, no, you're spiritually blind. You are still captive to your sin. And though you think you are following God, you're in fact just following along with everyone else in the world because you've not yet experienced the new birth. This is why we need to be born again. This is why we need to experience regeneration. 
But the second thing that we want to see from this passage is that we, we can't bring about the new birth ourselves. It's not a work that we can do in our own hearts. And so secondly, we need the new birth as a gift of God. We need the new birth as a gift of God. Nicodemus is, and we, you know, we don't blame him, he's, he's offended by what Jesus said to him. What do you mean I can't see the kingdom? What do you mean I have to be born again? Who are you, this peasant rabbi I'm trying to come and, and establish relationship with, and you're telling me I'm not in the kingdom? Incredulously, he asked, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it's not like that, you know, I mean, you know, again, you kind of you hear people, you know, say, well, Nicodemus was kind of slow, and he really thought Jesus was saying, you've got to experience physical birth again. No, the guy is the leader in Israel. I mean, he know, I mean, he knows something about these things. He's just, he's incredulous. He's indignant at Jesus with this response. And, of course, later Jesus is going to, to castigate him for being a teacher of Israel and not knowing these things. But, but Jesus says, look, let me go slow, Nicodemus. Let me explain it for you. Verse 5. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is it? We may have an idea about what it means to be born of the Spirit, but what does it mean to be born of water? Now, I've heard a couple different things. One, that it's, a, it's physical birth. You're, you're born, the water being symbolic for amniotic fluid, you experience a physical birth, and then you've also got to experience a spiritual birth. Okay, that's one option. Second option by uh, some other denominations, that is baptism. You have to be baptized and washed by the Spirit in order to be saved, okay? Well, there's a couple problems with that. One, water is never used in reference to physical birth in, in any literature of this time. No one, no one ever does that. So that makes it unlikely. Second of all, how is Nicodemus supposed to know about Christian baptism before there's Christian baptism? I mean, Jesus says, you're the, lead, the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Well, how can he know it? So what does that make me say? That makes me say it's got to be something in the Old Testament. That's where his specialty was. That's what he was known for knowing the Old Testament. And if we think that way, it's not long before we come across a passage like Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, that God's people are in exile because of their sins, and God is promising that one day he is going to bring Israel back from exile and give her new spiritual life. And this is what God promises. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." That's what Nicodemus should have known. That right there. That's what he should have been looking for. And so when Jesus said, you got, you've got to be born again to see the kingdom, he should have said, oh yeah, I remember God promised something like that, didn't he? And so Jesus says, it's, it's that cleansing that comes from God. So he says that the new birth, the requirement for seeing the kingdom is both a cleansing of the old as well as a creation of the new. Jesus said, I will cleanse you from your sins and I will give you a new heart. God washes the stain and guilt of your former sins away and at the same time creates new life within you. So forgiveness and cleansing are good, they're necessary, but it's also not enough, Jesus says. We need new life. We need to be transformed from the inside out so we have a new way of seeing and believing God and His Word. We need to be changed from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, and that is something we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot bring about the new birth. Well, it stands in contrast, though, to a lot of popular thinking. 
the other night. Uh, was out on a date with Melinda, and we had dinner, and afterwards we, uh, and this is part of the reason why I love her, she said, well, let's go hang out at Barnes & Noble's for a while, and I said, oh, baby, talk romantic to me. No, not really, I didn't say that, but, <laughs> but, uh, but no, we, we did go to Barnes & Noble, and, and uh, you know, I, I had a coffee, and, uh, and we were, you know, browsing books and stuff, and I went to this section labeled spirituality, and you know, th that's where we are as a culture. We, we like spirituality, we don't like religion. So Hollywood people can sit on the couch, you know, talking in the interview, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. You know, are you religious? Oh, it's a dirty word. Don't call me religious. I don't have nothing to do with religion. I'm just a spiritual person. And so in Barnes & Noble, they got that whole aisle, spirituality, right? And so, um, you know, she was looking at some books, and I was walking over, and something caught my eye. Frankly, it was kind of a weird-looking dude with the old Nero jacket and crazy sweatback hair, and I thought, well, what's this guy about? So I picked it up and looked at the back, and basically, he was the, the variety that, you know, you mix and match everything together in this kind of new-age mumbo-jumbo thing, and, and, and this is spirituality. And the whole crust of, of his, or the whole point of his book was saying, um, it's, all, it's all within you. Everyone has this, this, this kind of this, this spark of the divine or whatever you want to call it. And if we can just focus inward, we will achieve spirituality through meditation or whatever else. The answer lies within us. And I imagine uh, if we were to look at most of the books on that shelf, that's pretty much what they would say. In fact, you listen to the people on the talk shows in the morning. You know, I, find it, I find it incredibly odd that we have all these battles Separation of church and state, separation of church and state. But then you've got someone, you know, interviewing with, with Matt Lauer saying, here's seven tips for better spirituality. I go, what? I mean, what kind of crazy world do we live in? But, but, that, but that's, that's the same kind of thing. And they all boil down to this idea of you've got it within yourself. If you can just get in touch with the divine, you, you, can, you can create a spiritual environment within yourself. You can make yourself a better person. The Bible says, that's all bunk. You got it wrong. You are dead spiritually. How do you bring life from death? You can't do it. You can't do it. The Bible says that's not what it's about at all. Something from outside you has to come and invade your life. And, and frankly, I'm a little worried that sometimes Christian miss, Christians miss this. They, they think like Nicodemus that it's about what they do that gets them into, into the kingdom. Doing all those things are great, but that's after you're in the kingdom. You don't read your Bible and go to church and, and, and give an offering and, and, and sing loud and, and do all that kind of... You don't do that to get in the kingdom. God brings you into the kingdom and then out of love and joy and obedience, then you produce those things as fruit. But to get in first, to get in first, you need new birth. And Jesus says that, that is not something you can do yourself. The new birth is given by God. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Like begets like. In other words, how many of you uh, that are married had kids and it was something other than a human being? Okay? I hope nobody or else, you know, we go call Ripley's. All right? But you're a human. You produce a human, right? That which is the flesh, that which is a humanity produces flesh. I would love to say this is true, but when Melinda and I have had kids, we've never produced a child of God. Never. Now we can keep trying, but Jesus is not going to happen. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That means the new birth is not something we bring about in our hearts. But the good news is that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God's Spirit can and will bring about the new birth. God's Spirit is the one who produces a new nature and a new spirit within His people, causing Him to be regenerated as children of God, part of the kingdom of God. 
But just as where we don't decide where and to whom and when we're born, does anybody do that? You know, I put in an order and say, I want these parents to be born in this city. Uh, no, we don't do that, do we? I mean, it might be nice. You know, I mean, we should be thankful that we're not born in some third world country where we're struggling for life. But wouldn't some of us say, you know, um, if I could put the request in, maybe Rockefeller would be my last name? I mean, some of us would like that, wouldn't we? Doesn't work that way, though, does it? You're just born. It happens to you. And God says, Jesus says both, that's how the new birth is as well. You don't just meditate long enough and suddenly spiritual life springs forth. No, that is something that God must do. And so John emphasizes this at the very beginning of his, of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 13. The children of God are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. The Apostle Peter also teaches in his first letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. And so the New Testament's teaching about salvation stands in direct contrast to everything the world believes. We don't, we don't save ourselves. We don't produce spiritual life within ourselves. God invades our life. And He is the one who brings about the new birth. It is His gift to sinners saved by His grace. And so Pastor John Piper will say, any good that we do is a result of the new birth, not the cause of the new birth. This means that the new birth is taken out of our hands. It's not in our control. And so it confronts us with our helplessness and our absolute dependence on someone outside ourselves. We are dependent for God, on God, for salvation. We are dependent upon God for regeneration. We are dependent upon God to experience the new birth, for Him to cause it to happen within our hearts. But it's not just a random event. God doesn't just say, New birth, new birth, new birth, new birth. Let's go. I've got some kids. It doesn't work that way. The new birth is always and forever will be rooted in the person and work of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to the third thing that we see. The new birth, excuse me, we need the new birth to have faith in Christ. We need the new birth to have faith in Christ. In response to Jesus' question, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And I don't think his question is so much, how, can, how is this true? It's, how can this happen? Jesus has just quoted the Word of God. And I think Nicodemus is beginning to be struck by the reality that he's had it wrong. And he's asking, if God is the one who brings it about, then how is it ever going to happen? If I don't have anything to do with it, how is it going to happen in my life? You see, Nicodemus had believed that the entrance to the kingdom of God was conditioned, again, on things he was doing. Keeping God's covenant, obeying the law, submitting to God's will for his life. But Jesus says, no, it doesn't depend on any of that stuff. It depends on God doing something to you, for you. It's through the new birth that one enters and sees the kingdom. And then he tells Nicodemus, who's beginning to ask now, not just about, I think, the new birth itself, but what it means for the, new, for the kingdom, if that's the way for the new birth. And Jesus stops and he says... Well, how do you expect to have a conversation about those kind of things if you can't even get the basics down? He says, if I have told you earthly things and you, not, you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, how can we talk about things of heaven? How can we talk about things of eternity if you can't get your mind around what happens in this life in the new birth? Jesus knows there's an underlying problem here and he tells it to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. 
This is the problem. Nicodemus doesn't believe. His Lord is standing there in front of him, proclaiming his own testimony to the realities of spirituality, of life, of salvation, and he doesn't believe. He doesn't have faith. Has he been obedient to the law? He's thought he has, but how has he been obedient? He's been obedient to it by works, not by faith. Much like Paul before he was saved. He said, I didn't pursue the law by faith, by trusting in God for salvation. Ultimately, I was trusting in that which I was doing for salvation. And Jesus says the same is true with Nicodemus. The same is true with Nicodemus. But he says, Nicodemus, understand, the only person, who's, the only person who knows about heaven is the person who's been there and has come down to earth, the Son of Man, me. And you need to understand that ultimately salvation is about this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The new birth that God gives is specifically tied to Christ's coming to provide salvation. And Jesus is illustrating this with the life of Israel in a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. It's in Numbers, chapters 20 and 21. And if you remember from, the, from Exodus, God has saved Israel out of their captivity in Egypt. He has sent the plagues upon Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. And yet through that final, that final devastating plague, the death of the firstborn, his people have been spared, but all the Egyptians have not. And the Pharaoh just says, get, just get out of here. Just get out of here. And he lets them go. And supernaturally, they come to the Red Sea, God parts it, and, he, and then he brings it back together to defeat their enemies. He gives them, he gives them the law. He provides for them manna from heaven. He, he's leading them very specifically by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. He's given them everything, and yet they say, what's taking so long? What's taking so long? Why aren't we there yet, God? I mean, I'm getting sick of this manna. You know, we, at, least we, at, least we had some, at least we had some herbs and spices back in, back in Egypt. And they begin to grumble. And they begin to complain. And Moses tells us in Numbers 21.5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? In the very next verse we're told, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Judgment comes. And those that didn't die realized that their complaining, their impatience, their bitterness was sin, and they called out and said, how can we be saved from this, this judgment from God? And we're told the Lord spoke to Moses and said, make a fiery serpent and sit it on a pole and hold it up so that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And we're told Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if, the serpent, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. He would trust the promise of God that if anyone looked at the serpent, God would spare their life. And Jesus is saying, just like death was coming upon the people of Israel for their sin, so everyone now is sitting under the condemnation of God and death is at their doorstep. But I have come to bring life and salvation. And just as that bronze serpent was held up on a pole, so me, the Son of Man, come into this world, I will be hoisted up on a Roman cross. And all who look to faith in me, believing God will forgive their sins because I have died on that cross to pay the penalty for their sins. I have lived a righteous life that will be given to them. Those that would look to me in faith, they will be saved much more than those that were simply saved from physical death. They will be saved from spiritual death. 
Jesus is saying that he is the one who makes salvation possible. And so it's Jesus that becomes the object of faith for those who have experienced the new birth. It's him we believe in to acquire salvation. It is God who grants the new birth. He regenerates our hearts so that when we see and hear the gospel, when we see and hear the things of the kingdom, we're no longer spiritually blind, but the darkness is gone so that we can see who Christ is and what he has done for us and believe. Therefore, faith is said to be the, the cry of the newborn child of God. Later in 1 John, the apostle can say, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Those that have been born of God believe. And also in Acts 16, Luke says of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She experienced the new birth and opening of her heart, spiritual darkness lifted, and then she understood what Paul said. And the result is she believed because the very next verse is she was baptized. God gives spiritual life. God produces the new birth so that sinners can place their faith in Christ. And we have to get this so, so down. This never happens apart from the lifting up of Christ. God does not, God does not just on, on a whim start granting the new birth all over the place. No, it comes when Christ is lifted up. It comes when the gospel is proclaimed. Why? Why? Because the life that the Spirit gives us is the life that Christ Himself provides. In that passage we looked at in Ephesians 2 where, where Paul is describing the lost person. He goes on to say that God has made those that were spiritually dead alive with Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When the Spirit gives us life, it is in fact the life of Christ that is being given to us. God gives life through the proclamation of the gospel so that sinners might have spiritual life and believe. That's why Peter writes to the Christians in 1 Peter and says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, the gospel. Peter said, you heard the gospel, and through the gospel, God brought spiritual life to you. He brought the new birth through the proclamation of Jesus save, sacrificed for sinners. So as we think about this as God's people here this morning, when we realize that God brings about regeneration, when He brings about the new birth through the proclamation of the gospel, then we realize the absolute necessity of preaching the gospel. Do we not? If faith only comes by hearing, if God only gives life when Christ is held up, when Christ is lifted up, then we've got to lift up Christ so men and women and children from all over can be saved. And, and just understand that doesn't just mean we affirm, oh yeah, the church is to present the gospel. Yeah, you're right. But who makes up the church? Yeah. Individual Christians make up the, the body of Christ. And so it is dependent upon each and every one of us to present Christ that God might bring life and salvation. Let me just give you an example of this. It's a, a glorious testimony of God's work. It was in the life of Gary McManamy, our, our state evangelism director. In the course of a conversation, just totally off the cuff, he began to share his testimony with me. Gary was a guy who came from no church background whatsoever, never heard the gospel, never been to church, didn't know anything about anything when it comes to spiritual things. And he is... Uh, gone off to a degree in marketing and is seeking to get a job. And uh, his younger brother gives him a book, How Lindsay's the Late Great Planet Earth. 
And I, I said, you got saved reading that? And he said, no, 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 this is just this is part one. He said, I, he said I, you know, some of the, the stuff he didn't agree with, he said, but as, as someone who was not saved, he came out of that scene, God promised in the old, fulfilled in the new. God promised in the old, fulfilled in the new, down to the very details. And he said, the Bible's got to be true. I mean, all, and that's all that fulfilled prophecy, it's got to be true. And he said, he, it was through chapter four, that was, the, that was the thing that was burning on his mind, and then he fell asleep. And he woke back up and, and never picked up the book again. But... But he was out at a cafe getting ready for a job interview. And the waitress said, do you need anything else? I'm getting ready to go off shift. He says, no, I'm probably be leaving soon too. He says, okay. She said, can I tell you, can I, can I have five minutes of your time to tell you about somebody who changed my life? And she went on to present the gospel. And he, he never heard the gospel before. He didn't know what to make of it. He said, that sounds a lot like that book I just read. And so that kind of in the back of his mind, he goes on to the job interview. And it's with a corporate headhunter. So he goes into this place, he's up on the, like the, you know, the, the 40-something floor of this big building and the guy goes through the whole interview process and he says, oh, don't, not going to be a problem, I'm sure we can find you a job. And then he kind of reels Gary in and he says, can I tell you that the secret to happiness in my life in this big corporate mess? And he was like, yeah, absolutely, kind of scoots, leans forward. He says, it was, the, it was meeting one guy who changed my life. And Gary said, who was it? Can I? He said, yeah, it's Jesus Christ. And he said, he's, he's thinking, this, that waitress just shared that with me. What, what is going on here? And actually, Gary got indignant. He stood up and said, look, I, I just want the job. I don't want to hear that. And the guy said, hey, it's, it's no problem. It's no problem. We'll get you the job. Thanks for your time. And so, and so Gary's mind is, is reeling at this point. He's just thinking, what is going on? He steps into the elevator. It's the old style with the elevator operator, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's it's kind of a kick job. You know what I'm saying? And um, he says he gets in the elevator, and he's still thinking about the interview. And uh, he says, it was this elderly black gentleman. And he says, what floor? He says, all the way to the bottom. So he goes, ding, and they're going down. And he says, it's a beautiful day out there, isn't it? And Gary says, yeah, I, I, I guess it is. He says, uh, you know who made that day, don't you? God. And he said, what? And he begins in this elevator ride all the way down. This man begins to talk about the man who created everything and who sent his son to die for the sins of the world. And Gary's thinking, what is going on? I keep hearing this message over and over again. And he steps outside. And, and he's waiting for, for the light to turn in downtown Dallas, Dallas to walk across the street. And he's just got all these things in the back of his mind. He looks over and there's a guy in this really boss suit. And he's thinking, man, I don't know what that guy does. But I want to do what he does so I can dress like him. And he's kind of admiring the suit, and the guy looks over, and he kind of smiles at Gary, and he says, beautiful day, isn't it? And Gary says, what? What did you just say? And the light, the light turns green, and the guy says, you know, God made it all, and begins to walk across. And Gary just stands there dumbfounded. He says, what is going on? What is with this Jesus thing? Well, a little while later, he's flying back to Detroit to visit family. And he says he flew all the time for business. And he says the plane, was ex plane rides back then were expensive. Planes weren't filled up. You don't like where you're sitting after takeoff. You got upset somewhere else, no problem. He said, I get in this flight, jam-packed. He said, it's like sardines in there. And he's sitting there and just, you know, just kind of trying to make the most of it. And this guy strikes up a conversation next to him. And he says, are you traveling on business or pleasure? He says, oh, you're going to see family. So that's nice. And he says, what do you do? And Gary says, well, I'm in marketing. And he goes, oh, okay. You know, and kind of then just stopped. And Gary said, well, what do you do? And Gary said, the guy turned at him and said, I tell people about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. <laughs> And Gary was like, I couldn't go anywhere. I was stuck. I had to sit there and listen to this. The whole flight. Eventually, he gets with his wife and he says, listen, something, something is going on. The, I've heard this message over and over and over again. There has got to be some truth to us. They began to talk about it. And he said, we, we didn't know what we were doing. But, but we knelt down in front of our couch and we prayed and said, God, we, we, we think this is true. We know we've messed up our lives. Please forgive us and save us. Now, part of the reason why that is so glorious is not just because God was relentless in hunting him down. Because there's no ministers in that testimony. There's no church. Who was it? 
faithful men and women, ordinary Christians sitting in the pew week in and week out, who were so captivated with joy and the gospel they themselves believed and they couldn't help but share it. Folks, that's what we need to be about. If we understand that the new birth is absolutely necessary to see the kingdom of God, if we understand the new birth is not something we can bring about but must come as a gift of God, and that that new birth never is given by God except in the proclamation of the gospel, then how can we not make it our business, our goal in life to be someone? When we ask, what do you do? We say, I tell people about Jesus. Now we know. We know from experience it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Some people hear the gospel and are saved, and others hear the gospel and they're not saved. Gary heard it seven times before he believed. And part of the truth of our passage is this. It's not up to us who get saved. God is the one who gives life. This is why Jesus could say, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We, we can't tell God's Spirit, That one over there, go get him. I mean, it doesn't work that way any more than we can tell the wind, uh, you know, uh, I want a nice day for sailing, so start blowing. It just doesn't work that way. We don't, we don't have that kind of authority and command. Nevertheless, we can feel the effects of the wind, can't we? We can go out on a day like those the other day, and the wind is blowing voraciously. We can't see the wind, but we see the trees leaning over. We see the lawn chairs and the recycle bins floating down the street. We know the wind is there. We're out on the lake and we put the sail up and suddenly this loose piece of cloth, loose piece of cloth takes shape. And we realize suddenly we're, we're, in, we're in motion. We're, we're sailing across the water. The wind is blowing. Likewise, Jesus says, well, we cannot command the Spirit where to go. We see His effects. We see the hardened sinner, one who has declared numerous times he will have nothing of God, humble himself and repent and follow Jesus. We see the one who is actively running away from God turn and with joy put their faith in Christ. We see the effects of the Spirit who gives life to the gospel of Christ. And we realize that our task as believers is not to save anyone. That's not our job. That's God's job. That's what God does. Our task, though, is to be faithful in proclaiming the word, knowing the absolute necessity of the new birth that God gives to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are here this morning, as your people remembering, reflecting on our own experience of salvation, Father, many of us can remember a time where we thought nothing of the things of God and then in just a moment suddenly our hearts were captivated by you and the things of you, your word and the glories of Christ. Father, we're thankful for that. Father, we stand back in awe that you would bring spiritual life to those in spiritual darkness, that you would save those unable to, to save themselves. Father, we pray that you would allow that to well up within us in a spirit of thankfulness and joy and love for you, but, Father, also a greater passion to see the lost come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray also for those that are here this morning that perhaps they have never trusted in Christ. Perhaps they're here as a Nicodemus, believing somehow that it's what they do that will allow them to see your kingdom. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would bring the new birth to their hearts. Father, as they have heard the gospel, the saving message of who Jesus is and what he has done, Father, you will have worked to bring them to faith in yourself. 
Father, we pray that in every way, Lord, that your church will be built up and that glory will be brought to your name because you are the God who saves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.